seated. Also at this time, we're going to dismiss our children downstairs. I invite you to pray with me as we begin this morning. Father God, we come to you and we ask for your blessing on this word that we have read, and that you would apply this to our hearts by your Spirit. Do a work in us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Based on the evidence, who is Jesus? Based on the evidence that has been presented to you, who is Jesus? It's a super important question this morning. Matter of fact, it's been an important question throughout the whole series, all the way back to 2019 when we started Matthew. We have been taking a look at that very thing, the identity of Jesus Christ. This has been Matthew's whole purpose in writing his gospel, that those who read it, those who hear of it, would know the identity of Jesus Christ. So based on the evidence that has been presented to you, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We're in this particular moment in the story uh, toward the end of his gospel where we see Jesus is uh, suffering. It's his passion. He has uh, left the upper room, this intimate meal with his disciples, and he has gone to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's prayed, and he's suffered, and he's cried out, and uh, it has been uh, much stress for Jesus. And yet at the same time, there's a resolve in him, a strength that we see to obey the Father, and he goes and approaches his betrayer, and Judas, as we saw, betrays him with a kiss. And now he is bound. And he's being led to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. That's where we find ourselves. You see verse 57, those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Right away, especially given the context, we can feel a real intense tone. It's it's an intense moment in Christ's life and ministry. It's an intense moment in the story. The the stature of the people that are in attendance, their names, their titles, the place that they are, all underscores this intense moment that is taking place. This intense tone. right? You have Caiaphas, the high priest that's there. You have the scribes. You have the elders the guards, the chief priests. You summarize this, you have, with this group called the whole council, the Sanhedrin, made up of about 71 people, you have the totality of the religious and national authority, at least for Israel, all in one room. It's pretty intense if you think about it. The totality of the religious and national authority have all gathered for a legal hearing. That's an intense moment. Like I was thinking about six pastors that I'm trying to get together for one lunch in March, and I had to put out a doodle poll 
because it's impossible to get six super busy pastors all in the same room. Can you imagine trying to get 71 of the most influential, busy, authoritative people in a room together for a legal hearing? What's going on here? It's an intense moment. And they've gathered in this house of the high priest, all for a legal proceeding concerning the person of Jesus. Right? Peter as well, as we understand. I mean, the disciples have fled. They've deserted him. And yet there's one that still follows a little bit at a distance, who's still curious to see, who wonders what is going to happen to Jesus. We see in verse 58. And so we have this legal proceeding. We have all the religious and national authority, almost like a joint session of Congress, or all, and all the cardinals meeting with the Pope. That's kind of the, the tone and the intensity of what's going on. This important meeting, this legal hearing that's taking place. We wonder, why all of this? What is going on? Why have they gathered in this moment? And we're told that they're seeking false testimony against Jesus. We're told their motive right here. The reason they've gathered, the reason all 71 of this council have come together is for this specific purpose. These people, in all their authority, in all the circumstance, they are seeking false testimony against Jesus. Verse 59, the chief priests, the whole council, were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Not only do they want to incriminate him, Matthew tells us that they want to kill him. The point is, the religious leaders have had enough of Jesus, haven't they? They've seen his power and miracles. They've heard of his teaching. They see the impact that he's having on the nation, and they see him as a threat. And what do we do with threats, especially when we have the power in our minds to do so? What do we do with threats? We get rid of them. And so the council, the, the high priest, and the, and the 71, they want to get rid of Jesus. He's a threat. He needs to be dealt with. He needs to be removed. But in order to do that, they need testimony. There is a procedure involved. So they need testimony. And so they are looking for uh, people to come forward and offer testimony that would incriminate Jesus so that they could put him to death. And so, as we understand, many false witnesses came forward. But for whatever reason... The text says that they found none. Many false witnesses came forward, but they found no evidence that was incriminating enough in order to put Jesus to death. You see, they understood that in order to put someone to death, it had to be evidence that was compelling enough to motivate the Romans to bring this about because they didn't have the power to execute and perform capital punishment. This was the right of the Romans only. 
And so while many false witnesses came forward, they still didn't have too many inconsistencies, not enough to corroborate, not enough to bring together to be a compelling reason to bring to the Romans so that the Romans could do what only they could do, inflict capital punishment. And so they're seeking this evidence. And the text says that they found none. But finally, they got something that they could work with. You see what goes on in the next few verses here. That At last, two came forward. Very important. It must be established with two. Not just one. It must be established by two witnesses. So at, le- at last, two came forward and said, This man said... I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Oh, okay. Now we've got something to work with. He's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Where does this come from? Do you remember from the ministry of Jesus, a moment where he uttered similar words like this? You think back into the gospel accounts, A moment where he seemed to have said, these words seem a little bit familiar. Not exactly, I don't think, what Jesus said. They say, he said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God to rebuild it in three days. But what did Jesus really say? Do you remember? John chapter 2 records when Jesus went into the temple, right? cast out the the money changers, flipped the tables. What did he say? He said, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up again in three days? That's crazy talk. But John gives us insight into what Jesus was talking about. And here it is, verse 21, chapter 2. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. See, Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple. Jesus was talking about his physical body, right? That it would be destroyed, and in three days, he would raise it up. So they've misunderstood Jesus. They've actually misquoted Jesus, and they're u- but they're using his statement in such a way to incriminate him so that they can put him to death. And so here it is. They have something to work with, and so Caiaphas, the high priest, maybe eyes wide open, starts to press Jesus. He says, uh, the, the, Matthew tells us the high priest stood up. Imagine him seated in his position of authority, and he stands up and eyes wide open with an intense tone and the look in his eyes, and he says, have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? What are they saying about you, Jesus? Are you going to say anything? Are you going to respond? How would you respond? 
If you were before a court or in a legal proceeding and you were being falsely accused of something, misrepresented, misunderstood, misquoted, how would you respond? If your life was on the line and the evidence that was brought forward was false, not true, a misrepresentation of you and what you have said, how would you respond to that? Intuitively, we would defend ourselves, wouldn't we? We'd speak up. We'd tell the truth. We'd offer up testimony. But verse 63 tells us these very powerful yet simple words. But Jesus remained silent. In the face of being misunderstood, mistreated, misquoted, falsely accused, in the face of this, Jesus remains silent. Seems like Jesus pleads the fifth. So we wonder, is Jesus, right, exercising his right to remain silent in this moment? pleading the fifth. He's not responding at all. He's silent, Matthew tells us. Shocking in many ways, just because of the natural response that we would have in a situation like this. And and here's the thing, right? What's our natural assumption when someone is accused of something and they don't respond with any kind of defense? They just stand there. What's our immediate assumption? Guilty. They're guilty. They must be hiding something. They don't want to say anything to further incriminate them. So we assume that Jesus' silence is some kind of admission of guilt. But in all actuality, the opposite is the case here with Jesus. His silence reveals his innocence. You can't miss this. His silence reveals his innocence. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows what he said. Jesus understands the purpose of his life. Jesus understands his mission in the world. He knows the kind of suffering and death that he is about to endure. He understands that. And that's why he's silent. Because he knows he's the suffering servant. He knows that Isaiah 53 prophesies of his identity and his mission and what he would do here in the world. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. His silence 
is out of his self-understanding. He knows who he is. He knows what he's called to do. He's the suffering servant, and he's laying down his life freely, voluntarily, in submission to the Father to be the Savior of the world. Amen? His silence is a fulfillment of these prophetic passages. His silence reveals his innocence. His silence reveals his identity to us. Jesus is the suffering servant. He is suffering on behalf of his people in fulfillment of all of God's promises. That's what's happening right now. I love what Matthew Henry says here. He says, he would not deny the charge because he was willing to submit to the sentence. This is the very basis of our salvation. His silence, amen? It's revealing who he is. He's the suffering servant. He's the savior of the world in his suffering, in his death. Jesus' silence reveals who he is. He is the suffering servant. See this today and understand it today. But not only his silence, but also his testimony. His testimony reveals to us who he is. He is the promised Christ and the coming Son of Man. Look at what it says. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Caiaphas effectively in this moment puts Jesus under oath. I adjure you. That language is compelling language. You are now under oath. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Do you claim to be the Messiah Jesus or not? I adjure you by the living God. Answer my question. You are under oath. In Jesus' testimony, bold, bold testimony, tells us who he is. He says, you have said so. It is as you say. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. He testifies in court. I am the promised Messiah. I am the promised King who, is, who has come to rule and reign and save God's people from their enemies. I am He. You said so. And then he goes on to say this. He says, from now on you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What a bold statement from Jesus. Once again, Jesus uses that, 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 the, his favorite way to identify himself. He calls himself, more than any other title, the Son of Man. You'll see the Son of Man coming, I'm sorry, seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. This Son of Man figure comes from the prophet Daniel, the one who would come to rule and to judge the nations. Isn't that an interesting thing that Jesus is saying while he is sitting under judgment in the face of the 71, in the presence of the high priest, 
He's saying, I understand, in essence, he's saying, I understand right now what is taking place. I know who I am. I'm the suffering servant. But understand this, the Son of Man will, uh, will be seated at the right hand, a place of unparalleled power and authority. And, I, and you will see me coming, right, on the clouds of heaven, meaning he will one day have brought about a reversal of the situation. That one day, you'll see me coming in glory. One day, you'll see me coming in power and authority. And one day, you will stand before me, Caiaphas. And you will be subject to my judgment. What Jesus is saying in this moment, in such a bold fashion, I am the promised Christ. And I am the Son of Man that is promised according to Daniel. And you will stand before me when I come in power and glory. There will be an end time reversal of this situation. He understands who he is. He understands his pathway to glory is through suffering. But he understands that in the end that his life, his death, his ministry will be vindicated in the resurrection and ultimately revealed in most powerful fashion when he comes in the end and returns to judge the wicked. Amen? That's Jesus. A bold testimony of his identity. He tells us who he is. I'm the promised Christ. I am the Son of Man who will judge. Do you see Jesus now? Who he reveals himself to be? Do you see the significance of his identity? Based on the evidence, what is your judgment? Based on the evidence, what do you believe is true about Jesus of Nazareth? Well, we see what Caiaphas and the council think. Verse 67 and 68, the high priest tore his robes. And what does he say? He's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his testimony. It's blasphemy. Blasphemy was understood to be a violation of the third commandment. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. It was understood to be irreverent speech against God. Any such claim to be God would be irreverent and therefore blasphemous as well. And this charge brought the punishment of death. And so when Caiaphas hears these claims, yes I am, you will see the Son of Man, that Jesus is attributing those titles and saying that's me. As far as Caiaphas and the council are concerned, this is blasphemy and what is their judgment? They answered, he deserves death. They had all the evidence that they needed to incriminate Jesus and send him to his death. What is your judgment? Guilty. Deserving of death. We're told some of the most just awful things in a couple phrases. That these folks, these people, these leaders, they spit in his face. And they struck him. And some slapped him. 
Could you even fathom spitting in the face of the servant, the son of God, of the king, of the judge? Can you even fathom such pride and evil? Is there anything more offensive or degrading than to spit in someone's face? Such disrespect. Such evil. But even here, we're reminded again of Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus willingly suffers. He doesn't hide his face. He receives as the suffering servant all of this unjust suffering that he might save. He is the suffering servant in this moment. Both Jesus' silence and Jesus' testimony reveal who he is. That's what we see here today. Again, that's what this passage is about. Yes, it's what he's doing, what's being done to him, but it's also showing us his identity. And his silence tells us he's a suffering servant. His testimony, bold testimony, tells us he's the promised Christ. And he's the coming Son of Man. So I'm going to use this again, this question, for each and every one of you here this morning. What's your judgment? What's your judgment? Based on the evidence presented to you today, who is Jesus? There's no more significant question than that. We have the testimony from Jesus himself. He claims to be the servant, the Christ, the coming Son of Man. What's your judgment? Who is Jesus in your eyes? C.S. Lewis tells us this, you must make your choice, you must make your decision, I'm paraphrasing now, you must make your judgment, either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher only. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. All right, it's the famous quote which is often summarized. Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. You must make your choice. 
what is your judgment? Based on the evidence presented to you, who is Jesus? Decide today, is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? And I plead with you today to see him for who he really is. He's Lord. He's Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is Savior. He is King. He is Judge. He is all those things and more. Amen? So because of that, worship Him for who He is. Trust Him for who He is. Rely upon Him for who He is. Serve Him and submit to Him. And of course, hope for Him. There's so much hope here, really, when we think about Christ coming in the end. Hope for Him. So what's your decision about the identity of Jesus this morning? And how does that decision now, because I think for a lot of us, we might be like, yeah, I understand, I know it. And I have convictions about it. I believe it's true. But how does this belief and conviction translate into trust in every aspect of our life? We would all say, absolutely, yeah, he's God. That's great. But how does that decision impact the direction of our life if he is that in our mind? That's the second question I want to point to you. Not just making a decision about his identity, but then now, how does that decision about his identity impact or inspire some kind of shift or change in the direction of your life? How does Jesus being Savior, King, and Judge impact your priorities every day? How does it impact the way you approach relationships in this world? Your home, your workplace, your neighborhood. How does the Lordship of Christ affect your decisions, your thoughts, your motives, the way you manage your time and allocate those units of time. How does the Lordship of Christ transform your responses to difficulty and trial and suffering and sickness? How does it have any impact in the way we spend our money? What I'm saying is, is this decision impacts direction. If he's Lord, it will transform our living. And if there's ever been a moment in the Gospels where at least as it's intensifying, we begin to be motivated and transformed by just the ministry, uh, the love, the sacrifice, and in the end, the death of Jesus. If there's anything that's going to motivate me to transform my life, it's watching the way Jesus loves me and lives and, and, and is, is my king and my servant. Right? Repentance. 
a turning of direction, a changing of direction. It's all a response to, to grace. It's all a response to, to the love of God in Christ. Amen? That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing Jesus willingly, graciously, lovingly laying down his life. And that is the ultimate inspiration to live a life of service and submission to him. It is the motivation forever trusting in him because he, we know he loves us. So may that decision impact your direction, every aspect of your life. And not only that, beyond your direction, there's a decision that promotes a direction, but don't miss the destiny. Don't miss the destiny here. This should shape an understanding of our destiny as the people of God. When we know Jesus as Lord, as Savior, as King, as Judge, we know we know what he's done has saved us from wrath. And that when he comes as the Son of Man to judge, we will all stand before him, but we will not live with an expectation of wrath and judgment, but with an expectation of salvation. Amen? First Thessalonians 5 tells us, so when he's speaking about the day of the Lord, the return, he says this to the people of God who know and trust in Jesus. He says, for God has not destined us for wrath. Do you hear that? Yes, he is judge. He will come in the clouds with all power and authority, but he will come to save his people. He has not destined us for wrath, amen? But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our destiny. You place your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. You submit to him as Lord. You live with an with a, with a, uh, amazing hope. It's a beautiful hope. We are not anticipating wrath on the day of judgment. We are anticipating salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. It was his suffering, it was his death that secured for us this kind of hope and expectation on the last day. Amen? And so here we are. We're in the middle. We're right in the most intense moments of suffering and sorrow. But man, as bitter as it is, it's a reminder for us of the very basis of all of our hopes. All of uh, the blessings that we have, Jesus has bought and secured for us in this sorrow, in this suffering. He endured this rejection that we might be accepted this day and on the last day. Amen? What's your judgment? We have the evidence. Both Jesus' silence and Jesus' testimony tell us who he is. He's the suffering servant. He's the promised Christ. And he's the coming son of man. Amen? Come, Lord Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. For the ability and the time and the privilege of just walking through these passages slowly together to consider anew and in deeper ways 
the love of our Savior Jesus, to see who he is, and to respond appropriately. Father, I pray that people's eyes and ears are open to see and hear Christ for all that he is, to run to his arms, to receive salvation, to know and appreciate the fact that he paid it all, and all to him we owe. Lord, enable us to live a life of commitment and devotion, empowered by your Spirit. Change us, Lord, and continue to reinforce the hope we have at Christ's return. We pray this in his name. Amen. It's that time again that we draw near to the Lord's Supper.